This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It not only educates its students about today's communication industry, but it produces innovative leaders. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Jacqueline Wolf, a professor of history of medicine at Ohio University. We discuss her new book, Caesarean Section, an American history of risk, technology, and consequence. Currently, the United States leads the world in cesarean births, with about one-third of all deliveries being performed in that manner. Jackie, the term cesarean section, I, I think almost everybody thinks they know what that is. I'm not sure people actually do know what it is. So can you give us a paragraph or two on what cesarean section is? Well, I'm not a physician, so I'm probably not going to be exactly medically accurate. Uh, But cesarean section is major abdominal surgery is the bottom line. And it's, it's, the uterus has been accessed in a number of ways over time. My book is a history book. It starts in 1827 when the first cesarean section was actually um, reported in a medical journal in the United States. And um, it brings it up to the present day. So in that era, cesarean sections were performed by uh, making making a vertical incision from the belly button all the way to the top of the pubis. So a very long vertical cut in order to access, um, and it would obviously go through skin and muscle and to get to the uterus, and uh, the baby would then be extracted. Um, Now we have a very different cut. It is uh, a low, uh, a very low horizontal cut at the bottom of the abdomen. Um, it, It leaves a much stronger scar than the original cut. Um, One of the reasons the cesarean sections, one of the many reasons they used to be so dangerous, is that in subsequent births, the scar remaining was very weak. Because you cut through muscle and the abdominal wall, right, to get to the uterus. Exactly. And also, it was a very long cut as well, the the original uh, vertical cut. Um, And the uterus could rupture in subsequent labors, which is why you had the the saying, once a cesarean, always a cesarean. You couldn't let a woman go into labor after that. You had to do a cesarean, which was very dangerous. Not only the repeat cesareans for the woman, but you couldn't time it right because you had to be sure you did it before the woman went into labor, which meant the baby was going to be premature. So for many, it was bad for the baby. It was bad for the woman. Um, now, oh, for many reasons, cesareans are so much safer, even um, because of that cut, because we now have asepsis, we, you know, very, very, um, a lot of um, hygiene that goes on, obviously, in um, surgical suites. We have anesthesia. Think of what it was like to have a cesarean section before anesthesia. We didn't have anesthesia till 1847. <laughs> so... Oh my! Women were being operated on without anesthesia as well, and without any knowledge of what caused infection. 
Um, so postpartum infection was terrible. Hemorrhage was terrible. And we didn't have anything to treat hemorrhage or infection until after World War II for the, for the civilian population. So cesareans used to be um, almost always more deadly than anything that would spark the idea that you might need a cesarean. It was the cesarean that was the risk, not the condition that might cause a cesarean. Now, the horizontal cut that we see today as opposed to the vertical cut historically, uh, that's sometimes referred to as the bikini cut, right, by, by people in the vernacular. Do you know, you know what's ironic? It's actually called the low transverse cut in, yeah. in medical, in medical terms. Right. But I have to say the bikini cut, it's almost – I have, to, I have to say it trivializes the procedure. You're absolutely right that that's the way it's referred to. And in fact, when the low transverse cut was first sold to the American public, and I should add that it's really a European innovation that was instituted in 1906, but it wasn't introduced to the Amer American public until the late 1960s, early 1970s to become popular here. Mainly, and frankly, it's much safer. Um, the, the other cut that I described, the classic cut, the long uh, vertical cut, is actually easier to perform. So American obstetricians did prefer it for that reason. But the other one, the low transverse cut, the European innovation is much safer and creates a stronger surgical scar. But like any, any other profession, there's a certain amount of nationalism involved in medicine. And doctors didn't want to take uh, a European innovation and make it their own. So it was many, many decades, uh, between six and seven decades before it was actually popularized here. And yes, as to your original question, um, it was called the bikini cut because it was sold to women literally in magazines that you can even wear a bikini after, because after this. Because in the old – with the old one, the vertical one, the scar was pretty noticeable uh, and, as you said, was weaker and, and everything. It, and so – it, it mandated the one piece uh, for most women who cared about that kind of thing. But, but it really was sold as a, almost a cosmetic as opposed to a medical idea. That's exactly right. It was almost sold as um, going to a spa, as easy as going to a spa. And you can even wear a bikini afterwards. You can even have, this is another quote from magazines of that era, you can have eight or even more cesarean sections. Now, I should say prior to that, all doctors recommended after a woman had a third cesarean, and I'm talking about this is before the early 1970s, all women were told after a third cesarean, you should have a hysterectomy. That's how dangerous the classical cut, the long cut, used to be, that the uterus became so weak and there would be so many problems in subsequent births that they would recommend strongly that women remove the uterus afterwards. So you have a hysterectomy after three births. How did the name cesarean come, come about? Because... Uh, it's not something that a commoner, a, a layperson, would attribute to birth or, or to even the surgeries that you've described. There's actually a very simple answer. It comes from the Latin to cut. Um, the myth is that Julius Caesar was born by cesarean section, and that's where the name come from, came from. That is a complete myth. <laughs> and actually, um, Julius Caesar's mother um, lived to be an old woman, and the reason we know for sure he wasn't born by cesarean was because she lived to be an old woman. Women died. You didn't do a cesarean section unless you were sure the woman was going to die. You did it at the last minute 
to, to as a last minute effort. And so that that's an absolute myth. It simply is the la- comes from the Latin to cut. So back in the old days, let, let's say before 1930, why were cesareans done? Again, it was, was it only because of fear of death of the mother? Was it done for a fear of death of the fetus? Um, give us some of the rationale besides, obviously, mothers in, in emergency stress. In the era you're talking about, and I would even go a little bit further forward, and I would even say before even 1960, the focus was always on the health of the mother. And so if you performed a cesarean, it was always because people were cons- very concerned about the mother's health. Now, I would really have to divide this up into eras, because if we're talking about the 19th century, the main indication a good 80% of the time for a cesarean section was because of a, of a very malformed pelvis, which was common in the 19th century because of rickets, which is a, which is a softening of the bones. Um, caused by lack of exposure to sunshine, basically, when, when you know, people were lived in tenements and, and there were no windows in the tenements. That's why building codes have windows now, right. mainly because to expose people to sunshine. So, so uh, rickets was a real problem in that era. So that was, one, that was the main indication for a cesarean section. And frankly, the main, um, a, a huge number of women who had those first cesareans in the 19th century in the U.S. And we actually know about virtually every cesarean in the U.S. through 1871 because of a physician who became the first medical statistician, and he collected data. Um, he became obsessed with cesarean sections, and he found that a good 20% of ces- those first cesareans, so we're talking about the first roughly 100 cesareans, right. were performed on women of very short stature, women that he referred to as dwarfs, so women under four feet who did have very terrible problems with misshapen pelvises as well. Um, And uh, that was the absolute number one indication, that there was no way to get that baby out of there without literally cutting it out of the womb. And that continued, that rationale continued how long? By the 20th century, when we had cleaner surgical suites, when we had anesthesia, uh, the indications began to widen. Uh, so it wasn't just about malformed pelvises. By roughly 1910, 1920, people started looking at indications like severe placenta previa. Placenta previa is when the placenta covers the cervical opening. So you, and the, blocks the, and the, blocks the tram, transmission of the baby. Exactly. Through the that. baby can't get into the birth canal because the, because the placenta is blocking the way. Um, and it, that would be very deadly for both the mother and the baby because for the baby, um, the oxygen will be cut off before the baby's born. For the mother, if you damage the placenta in any way, she might start to hemorrhage. So it would be very, placenta previa can be very deadly for both mother and baby. The list was actually very, it was very short and it was always qualified. It wasn't just placenta previa that would call it, it would cause it, it would be extreme placenta previa. So when you, when you would read about it in, in the literature, um, things that today would absolutely any type of placenta previa, you would go for a cesarean section. Then it had to completely cover the cervical opening. That's how much they avoided cesarean sections. How about breach uh, positions of babies? Did that cause it? No. Didn't? Never. Um, That's actually a very new, um, only very recently are obstetricians not trained in 
uh, vaginal breech births. They are trained in how to deliver a second twin breech, but not a singleton, uh, not mm. a single birth. Um, one, what, what a lot of the critics of the high cesarean section rate today um, say is that one of the many reasons we have such a high cesarean section rate, which we should talk about, is that um, obstetricians are not well-trained anymore in how to get women out of trouble. Um, I interviewed for my book uh, obstetricians of all ages, including obstetricians who were retired, who were trained as early as the 1930s. And right through the 1960s, all obstetricians were trained in how to do breech births. And they, there are several types of breech births. A, a frank breech, which is the safest, is really when the butt presents first. That's the easiest. A footling breach is problematic because that's when the foot pre pre prevents first. Um, but doctors say, you know, we just knew how to do it. We knew how to deliver breech babies. Um, now you would be hard-pressed to find any doctor trained after 1980 who has ever seen a breech birth, let alone delivered a breech birth. Um, and a lot of that is due to studies that do, sh do show that breech births um, are more dangerous for the fetus. Um, but again, if you have a doctor who's been trained in delivering breech births, they are much safer. That's why the studies are um, a little bit difficult to wade through because part of the dangers now are the lack of training in delivering breech births. Now, this is going to be a bizarre question, so forgive me ahead of time. <laughs> Knowing the history of childbirth and, and uh small babies. We've gone through different periods, even in my lifetime, of trends. Uh, uh, trends as they apply to breastfeeding, for example. Uh, sometimes in the 40s and 50s, it was a good thing that it wasn't a good thing, and now it's a good thing, and, and now it's optional. I mean, it... it didn't seem to be based on necessarily hard medical science. It was just sort of what was popular uh, with the general population. Is there any corollary to cesareans to that same kind of thing? I can, you know, since I do write about the history of breastfeeding practices, I can say, yes, there definitely is a corollary. When women were sold on formula feeding, you know, that was an era when, you know, we're talking about the post-war era when there was so much faith in science and there was you know, science and medicine could do no wrong. And so the thought was we can improve on what nature has done. We can absolutely, formula is fortified, you know, the, the buzzwords the that we use. All the vitamins, all the, uh, I remember all of the, the listings of things that were in it. Exactly. And what hubris, I mean, think, think of, think of the, the hubris that it takes to think that millions of evolutionary years working on making mammals milk perfect for each species, species unique to each species, that we could possibly improve on that. Human milk is a living substance, like blood. Um, it actually has anti-infective factors in it that you can't possibly get in formula. Yeah, immune system boosters oh, <laughs> or creators. Breastfed babies have completely different immune systems than bottle-fed babies. There's no question about it. But my, my point is, is that, yes, it was popular culture rather than any kind of medical investigation or proof that made formula feeding seem like the way to go in the 1950s and 1960s. Very similarly, um, let's talk about cesarean sections yeah, for a minute. Yeah. 
Yeah, please. Because we currently have a 32.9% cesarean rate. Um, it, it, th- at the very height, it was at 33%. And in all the research that I've done on the, hist- on the birth practices in the United States, I've looked at thousands of birth records, going back to midwives' records in the 18th century and uh, lying in charities in the 19th century where impoverished women were brought into hospitals to have their babies delivered. I've looked at all over the country. I've looked at those records. I've looked at records from the 1930s that were recently found in closets in hospitals and luckily made available to me. And throughout all that time, so I'm talking from the 18th century midwives right through to 1930s hospitals, about 5% of human births run into trouble, 5%. So one of my research questions became, so how in the modern era, when diets are better, when medical care is better, when prenatal care is better, did we end up with 33% of human births in the US being defined as such a problem that women need major abdominal surgery to get that baby out of there? So there aren't enough medical reasons for it. So to go back to your original question, yes, the answer really comes less from medical reasons and more for what was going on in the culture at large. It's convenient in a sense that you can predict uh, when when you're going with some degree of of certainty. Uh, If you're in a prolonged labor, uh, it shortens the time. Uh, uh, of that. So there are, are reasons that don't necessarily go to the medical side. Uh, if somebody's in labor, a doctor can do a cesarean and move on. Uh, uh, the, the, the mother is, is going, get this thing out of me. You know? uh, it's, it seems like those aren't medical reasons. No, absolutely right. They're not. And, and frankly, you shouldn't be having any kind of surgery unless there are medical reasons for it. But in terms of convenience, yes, you're absolutely right. And we can look at that from two angles. One, women's lives have really changed a lot in the last 30 to 40 years. Um, and w- most women and most, in fact, the majority of women with young infants are all working women. They work outside the home. I mean, all women are working women, but these are women, you know, women who work outside the home. And they need to plan for a maternity leave. They need to be able to tell their employer when they're going to take leave. They need to know when they're going to go back. They need to know when their mother can come. Their mother might be a worker, too. And they need to know when their mother can come plan and come conveniently to help out after the baby's born. So, yeah, people do like to plan for births. Now, I have to say that most of the planning is done on the part of doctors. And so when women say that it's, it's when, when, you know, when people say that it's women who are pushing for planned cesarean sections, every study shows that is not true. You know, when women don't go into birth desiring a cesarean section. Certainly there are a few who might, who might not want to go through labor. Um, but let me just tell you one story that I just very recently heard after sure. speaking to a group of obstetricians. Um, one of them came up to me and said that at his hospital, the residents have 12-hour shifts. And the culture is such that it is considered rude that if you've had someone in labor for X amount of hours, it's considered rude to pass that woman on to the next shift. So indeed, he said, at the end of a 12-hour shift, you're going to see a lot of women being told, you need to have a cesarean section, simply because the shift is ending. Now, 
hospitals aren't factories, and this is this shouldn't be a way that we decide that women are going to have major abdominal surgery. I mean, keep in mind, even though cesareans have become a lot safer, it still dictates the trajectory of your reproductive life. Once you've had one cesarean, you still have to decide with each birth, should I try for a vaginal birth? Is it a little bit more risky? And with each cesarean section, you have an increased chance of having a problem with the placenta in every subsequent birth and the chance of having a serious problem with the placenta. Um, and one of the most serious is something called placenta accreta because what happens after you've had X number of cesareans, and again, with each cesarean section, the, the chances of it happening get higher. Placenta accreta is when the placenta grows into the former uterine scar. And okay. after the baby is born, the placenta won't detach, which means a hemorrhage begins. Um, we used to see in the 1950s, uh, um, one in 30,000 births would see an accreta, which is a very serious complication of labor. In almost every case, the woman has to have her uterus removed to stop the bleeding. In 7% of cases, the woman dies. She hemorrhages. Um, so from one in three, 30,000 uh, births seeing an accreta, we now see one in 500. Um, only because of our very high cesarean rate. So that's just one example of how this high cesarean rate is really hurting women. And let me make a pitch for labor here. You alluded before to, you know, if a woman's getting tired, it can truncate a labor. She doesn't have to have to such a long labor. Labor is a good thing. <laughs> labor is a positive thing. It's great for the fetus. First of all, the last-minute hormones of labor are very important in brain development, especially in lung development getting through the birth canal, all the amni amniotic fluid is squeezed out of the lungs, the baby is born breathing on its own. 100% of babies lifted from the womb by cesarean section, 100% of them are born with wet lung because they their lungs are full of amniotic fluid. They haven't been squeezed out yet. That's one of the reasons researchers think we have an epidemic of asthma among young people because of our high cesarean wow. section rate. Another thing that's going on, too, we also have an epidemic of allergies. Yes. And that's being traced to the high cesarean section rate, too. We're just beginning to learn about the human microbiome, all the trillions of bacteria that live in and on us, and what it means to our health. Um, when babies are not exposed to the flora, the vaginal flora in the birth canal, their um, gut microbiome is very different from babies um, who are exposed to that, babies who are born vaginally. And that difference in the gut microbiome persists for up to six months, even if the baby is breastfed. So exposure to the, the microflora of the mother in the vagina is incredibly important to infants and children's and e probably even adult health. Um, so we're, we're manufacturing all these artificial ways, not only of feeding, well, but of being born. I was just going to, to make that observation. It seems like uh, through the centuries, our bodies have adapted, mothers' bodies have adapted to do what nature intended for the child and for the well-being of the child. Now, for emergencies, yes, but for other reasons, we have interfered with that. And now we're seeing some issues. 
and, and some problems. Do, do I have it right? You absolutely do. I mean, there there are there are there are consequences to every kind of medical intervention, and. Uh, some of the most serious are, are consequences seen during the birth process. Uh, so you have to be very sure. And that's why cesareans were so incredibly rare before the 1960s. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. We have this uh, 5% early on to nearly 33% now. Was that a gradual growth, or was it a spike and in, in plateaued? Can you tell us about that? It actually, the, the most precipitous increase occurred between 1969 and 19, mid-1980s. So in a 15-year period, there was a very, very rapid spike in cesarean sections. After that, it continued to, by, by the mid-1980s, it was about um, 23% of births. And boy, we'd love to have it be that low now. Um, and then it did, obviously it did continue to increase, but the most precipitous sudden increase was really in almost a 10-year period, early 1970s to early 1980s. Um, the reasons for it are very complicated, but if I were to choose one reason, it would be the electronic fetal monitor, which was adopted in 1969, um, embraced by hospitals very quickly without any testing whatsoever for efficacy. Um, now, just to explain, that's, that's a monitor that goes through the vagina to the baby, is attached to the baby during the labor process to monitor uh, the essentials of to, the baby. To monitor the fe- it's about monitoring the fetal heartbeat. Okay. And it can be done either internally, as you, you just described, or externally. Okay. Um, so you're monitoring the, fe- the, the fetal heartbeat, and the, the monitor also provides a consistent record of the ups and downs of the fetal heartbeat. So, so is the baby in, quote, distress, uh, or is the baby going along at its normal rate. Exactly. The, the, the doctors read it. Um, it's, it's not easy to read. Um, you have to be highly trained to read it. And it seemed to be, at the time when it was adopted, it seemed to be a no-brainer. It never occurred to anyone to really test it because it seemed like, well, if we can monitor the heartbeat and see if a baby's in trouble and get them out quickly, what could be the downside? And that really was the discussion, the medical discussion among doctors. 
Um, what no, the standard of care before that then had been intermittent li- listening to the baby's heartbeat intermittently with a fetal stethoscope. You know, every twenty to thirty minutes, a nurse or a doctor would wander in and listen to the fetal heartbeat. Um, what no one recognized, and and now it wasn't until the the very first randomized tests of the fetal monitor, where women were randomized to be monitored with a fetal stethoscope, like in the old days, randomized, or put on the electronic fetal monitor, um, didn't happen until eight years after the introduction of the monitor. And every every subsequent um, study since then has shown that, that the monitor doesn't change fetal outcomes. They thought for a while it would wipe out cerebral palsy because the thought was cerebral palsy is caused by fetal distress, mm-hmm. deprivation of oxygen. Um, the now that uh, virtually 100% of women are monitored, the fetal uh, uh, the incidence of cerebral palsy has not gone down one smidgen since the late ni- since the introduction of the fetal monitor in the late 1960s. Um, we know now cerebral palsy probably occurs early in fetal development. That, that's the thought. The one, and also neonatal deaths, stillbirths, um, admissions to the neonatal intensive care unit, all the same, whether you were monitored with a stethoscope or monitored with, um, with an electronic fetal monitor. The only thing the monitor was doing was increasing the cesarean rate because doctors would read the monitor strips and say, the baby looks like they're in distress. This heartbeat doesn't look right. And as the inventor of the monitor, Edward Hahn famously said, when he was realizing what the monitor was doing, he said, quote, this is an exact quote from him, they're dropping the knife with each drop in the fetal heart rate. And um, it was Hahn himself, the inventor of the monitor, who, who recognized fairly early on that the main thing the monitor was doing was increasing the was increasing the, the cesarean section rate, and that's been the effect that it's had. Now, I have to say, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has said in all their advisories about the monitor that listening with a fetal stethoscope is just as effective in low-risk births as using the fetal monitor, and doctors should consider using that. Unfortunately, now we have two generations of doctors who've been trained on the monitor, feel very comfortable with it, and feel very uncomfortable by not having babies being continually monitored. So again, this is a medical cultural thing, and the even, old stethoscope way would be like going back to the Model T for, for some of these new obstetricians. Exactly, even though it's just as effective and um, you wouldn't have such a high cesarean section rate if you did that. Now, I should add in fairness, there was one study, because um, I just said that, that the electronic fetal monitor doesn't change outcomes. There was one study that showed that um, there were more neonatal seizures in, in babies who were monitored only with the fetal stethoscope. Um, the reason that isn't mentioned very much anymore is because in a follow-up study to that, um, when they looked at the outcomes after a year of those, two, of those two groups, they didn't see any differences after a year in, in the babies, even the ones who had had seizures in both groups. So there really doesn't seem to be any, um, any benefit in being electronically monitored, except that doctors are used to it and it makes them feel better. And I have to say, it's not very good for doctors either. Another thing that it did for the culture is it changed everything about the malpractice crisis in obstetrics. Because once 
lawyers had, <laughs> had that monitor strip. They could literally point to a squiggle on a page and say, that is where the baby was damaged. Um, and normally those lawsuits were brought on behalf of babies who had, or children who had cerebral palsy. And they were very persuasive for jurors. And it changed everything about the malpractice climate in obstetrics. So the electronic fetal monitor, with its ostensible proof of an entire labor, which, frankly, you can take experts. And again, studies have shown this, too. They've taken experts looking at the same monitor strip. And even the experts can only agree 60% of the time on wow. the meaning of, of a monitor wow. strip. So it hasn't been good for babies. It hasn't been good for doctors. And all the studies in obstetric journals show that. You talked about insurance, and you were talking about malpractice insurance, which is exorbitant for any obstetrician uh, I, I know. Let's go over on the other side, the health care uh, insurance uh, for the mothers. Uh, it has it had any role? Often we claim, rightly or wrongly, that medicine now is dictated by health insurance companies and how long you can stay in the hospital, what procedures you can have, what procedures you can't have. Has that had any role in the rise of cesareans? Well, there definitely is a correlation between larger reimbursement for performing a cesarean as opposed to attending a vaginal birth and a higher cesarean rate. Um, currently, doctors and hospitals um, in an in a cesarean birth with no complications whatsoever, which actually is very rare. The complication rate after a cesarean, it's, it's pretty normal to have some complications. But with no complications at all, the reimbursement rate for hospitals and doctors is twice that of a vaginal birth. And another thing that's shown in exact uh, corollary is when Medicaid bumps up their reimbursement rate for cesareans, the cesarean section rate among women who get Medicaid also bumps up correspondingly. Um, now, no one would accuse doctors of consciously doing more cesareans because they get more money, but the correlation has been very, very clear um, since the cesarean section rate became began to spike. The correlation between reimbursement rates, higher reimbursement rates, and higher cesarean rates has been unwavering. Well, if you combine the two, and maybe this is not a, a good combination, but if you say, okay, I'm monitoring the fetal monitor, I see something that's a little bit funky, uh, I do a cesarean section, I get double the, the rate from the insurance company, and I limit my potential liability on, on malpractice. That seems to be a twofer. Well, here's the ir irony, though, about limiting the liability. It's because you're absolutely right. Um, and, and doctors will even say, I mean, they even said to me, if you do a cesarean, you're covered. No matter what, you're covered. The irony there is the, the lawsuits, large lawsuits for failure to perform a cesarean, and you end up with a damaged baby, the first ones didn't occur to the early 1980s with the, the spike in cesarean, after the spike in cesarean sections, after trial lawyers began to figure out that they could use those fetal monitor strips um, very successfully um, before a jury in court. Um, the irony is that before then, 
there were there weren't lawsuits for failure to perform a cesarean. In fact, cesareans were defined as the problem. So if there were any lawsuits before the early 1980s that had anything to do with cesarean section, it was about problems that the mother had because of the cesarean. The cesarean was the problem. What's happened now is we've defined risk, not in terms of the problems a cesarean could cause, which is the way we used to define it. Right. We now define risk in terms of vaginal birth, which is very ironic. It's a, it's a change in medical culture, and I think it's a change that we can fix. Um, again, the high cesarean rate is not good for mothers. It's not good for babies. And ultimately, lawyers could just as easily say that if a mother dies a placenta accreta because of two previous cesareans, doctors could be just in just as much trouble. So we need to really think more about cesareans in terms of what I could refer to it as major abdominal surgery. And you only do it if it's absolutely clearly necessary. Two quick questions. One, how do we compare to the rest of the world or Europe uh, primarily? And two, uh, what's the impetus to get this rate down other than what you just described, which seems sort of altruistic but maybe not realistic? So help me with both of those. Well, we led the way. The United States led the way in terms of um, the, the higher C-section rate. Um, up until the early 1980s, there was no one anywhere near the way we had had that big spike. Um, since then, um, and it took them a longer time, um, other, other um, wealthy countries have also seen their cesarean section rates go up. And that, of, that often happens. I mean, the, the United States does lead the way in terms of medical, however you want to call it. I don't want to use the word innovation, but just medical method, medical technique. Right. Um, in terms of wealthy countries, most of them are not quite as high as we are. Um, I have to say the highest rates in the world now are in Brazil and China. Um, there are hospitals in Brazil where doctors simply don't do vaginal births, that the rate can be 90% cesarean rates. Wow. Uh, the rate in China, um, and again, in China it varies depending on urban, rural areas. Right. It, it really varies by geography, by economics. Um, but the rate there can be as high as 50%. So they, they, those two countries are, have, are really, they've gone way beyond the United States now um, for very different reasons than the U.S. Every, and what's fascinating to me is every country has a different cultural reason, whether it's economics, whether it's simply fashion, which is the case in Brazil. It's very class-based in Brazil. And an entire culture has been built in Brazil around the cesarean section, including having um, planning for a videographer. There are videography departments now in hospitals in Brazil that simply work with the mother for nine months to choose what they want in their cesarean video. That's how much it's, cesareans have become part of the culture of Brazil. Um, in terms of um, in in terms of your question about what how do we what do we benefit from bringing the cesarean rate down? You know, I go back to my point about asthma rates, yeah. allergy rates. Um, we have the highest maternal mortality rate of any wealthy country. We're in fact we're one of the only countries in the world, not just among wealthy countries, but also among developing countries, where our maternal mortality rate is going up rather than going down. 
And a lot of the complications of birth now, whether it's hemorrhage, whether it's pulmonary embolism, whether it's placenta accreta, which I described earlier, are all traceable to cesarean sections. And I literally had a doctor in a Chicago hospital say to me, someone who was trained in the 1970s, say to me, and this is her quote, not mine, we are killing women with all these cesarean sections. Um, and I also fear, you know, we only know about asthma and allergies right now in terms of how it's affecting the fetus. We may find, who knows, other, other, other things that are very negative about cesarean sections. Um, so there are a lot of reasons to want to bring the cesarean section rate down because of mother's health, because of baby's health, and, be, you know, it, it ultimately would be better for physicians, too, because absolutely, this malpractice climate is killing them. Um, there are areas of the country, uh, especially rural areas, where you don't have obstetricians anymore because they can't afford the malpractice I, insurance. I have several friends who have gone out of that practice because it's just uh, unbelievable, the, the malpractice expense. And this wasn't the case not that long ago, where doctors would pay 100 dollars for the malpractice insurance. I interviewed them, doctors practicing in the 1960s. It never occurred to them that they would have some kind of major lawsuit. And it really wasn't until the, the 1980s, the electronic fetal monitor, um, suddenly it's not just accidents, it's a mistake someone made. And again, supposedly pointing to a squiggle on a page and saying, that's where the error was made. And, it, you know, it's, it's just the current climate, whether it's the malpractice climate or the cesarean rate, it's not good for anybody. I just want to take a couple of minutes and, and talk about you. We've been talking about your, your book. You're a medical historian. Most people uh, wouldn't know what that is. You're associated with a medical school, but you're not a physician. You're a medical historian. What is that, and how does that fit into uh, a medical education? Uh, I just returned th this past weekend from the annual meeting of the American Association for the History of Medicine. So there are a lot of historians of medicine out there. Um, some are PhDs. Some are physicians who also have PhDs in the history of medicine. Some are simply physicians who became interested in the history of medicine. Um, and it's, it's a vast field. Um, you can't believe the different things, the different areas that medical historians specialize in. I specialize in the history of birth and breastfeeding practices in the U.S., but oh my goodness, there's no, there's no end to the narrow specializations that historians of medicine have, because as you can imagine, um, you know, medicine takes care of many different populations. There are many different types of healthcare systems, many parts of the body that doctors focus on, and um, there are even more special in the history of medicine than there probably are specialist doctors. Um, so it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating, endlessly fascinating field. And it's a lot of medical schools now have historians of medicine on their faculty um, because it's very important that doctors understand, um, you know, it, it's important, I think, that it makes doctors humble because and it, no one knows better than a medical historian how little doctors know at any point in time. And frankly, more than half of the medical innovations, far more than half, um, that have ever been introduced, whether it's medications, whether it's surgical techniques, have been proven either useless or dangerous. 
Um, and when you know that history, it makes you humble about quickly adopting and makes you think twice about qu qu quickly adopting any innovation and makes you it, – it, it's it, – it, explains the reason why we focus now on evidence-based medicine. And, and we combine that uh, innovation in medicine that you're talking about with innovation in pharmacology. Uh, and sometimes uh, that's a miracle, and sometimes it's a lethal combination. As we look at the oxycodone and oxycontin uh, and the opioid crisis that we have. That's such a good contemporary example of, um, of a crisis that was created by medicine. And medical historians can point to, in every single era, we can point to many, many instances of that, of, of crises not being created by a crisis in public health or by um, some kind of deadly bacteria jumping from cows like smallpox did to the human population, but, uh, but a crisis simply created by medical care. You take a long time to research uh, a book like uh, Caesarean Section, an American History of Risk, Technology, and Consequence. takes you a long time to do a book. You get to uh, satisfy your curiosity now by you're going to do a podcast, and you get to jump into – Instead of spending months and years on a particular topic, you get to jump in and, and talk to somebody and get absorbed and then go on to the next. Talk about that. One of the exciting things about being a medical historian in, in a medical school is that I get to have some kind of effect on contemporary medical practice. And yes, that got me very interested. Um, I've been doing uh, radio shows here in our local NPR station, WOUB, for many years. Um, because I'm so interested also in the contemporary practice of medicine. And yes, the podcast um, that I'm doing called Lifespan um, talks to people. The, the inspiration came from This American Life on, on the national NPR. Right. Um, it's stories about people's experiences with health, illness, and the healthcare system. Uh, the stories that we that we hear from the people who are our guests on, on Lifespan are very personal, very interesting. And Every show revolves around a theme. So we'll have a show about chronic illness, and three different people will t talk about their experience with three different chronic illnesses. Or we'll have a show about accidents and the story of how an accident, a serious accident, affected someone's life and what they learned in the aftermath of that accident. Um, we're, we're doing a show on new mothers and breastfeeding. Um, a fascinating show on a very, very difficult diagnosis, a very un a, a terrible unexplained illness that doctors were just scratching their heads about and how they finally figured out what was wrong. Um, so those are the kind of stories that we're telling on Lifespan. That, that is not only fascinating stories, but like I said, it gives you the opportunity to do something fairly quickly as opposed to long-term research, but yet tell the story uh, from a person's own perspective. Exactly. To do it very quickly, very intensely, but also from an educational bent as well. Because we don't just talk about chronic illness. We then get a doctor to comment on the stories. And the doctor will talk about 
the bad the, you know, point out the bad communication why some of the some of our guests had to suffer for so long because doctors weren't listening to the patient so it's also a way to educate the population too about how to communicate better with their doctors and how to get doctors to listen to them is just one example Jackie best of luck with your book best of luck with your lifespan podcast that's coming up here shortly uh, uh, just tremendous work Thanks, Tom. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Jacqueline Wolf, a professor in the history of medicine, about her new book outlining the growth of cesarean sections in United States obstetrics. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.